50 students and 20 adults uh, going on the summer trip, which I'm extremely excited for. If, if you are on the fence, come talk to me. I will try to convince you otherwise and kind of, kind of get you on the trip. Something new that we started, I don't think Aaron mentioned, but I know a lot of people come and they, and they ask for kind of some sponsorship money or need help. And so what we did this year is that I thought it was appropriate that there's an application uh, for that. And if, you, if you're expecting any type of sponsorship or you're looking for sponsorship, I want you to go back uh, and ask me. I will get you a sponsorship letter. And there's going to be some questions on there. You know, why do you want to go? Um, how much do you need? Uh, just so that a lot of times, you know, people say, well, I need sponsorship. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm paying for your whole trip. Or you're just going to do nothing. Or what does that mean? And I want to make sure we're on the same page. And I also want to provide opportunities uh, for people who deserve it to, to have a little uh, boost uh, for them. And so... Uh, I just want to make sure that that's, you guys know about that and that's available, so make sure you see me after um, service. So we're starting this Ash of the Fire series, and we're going to tag along over the next six weeks with the church. The church is doing uh, kind of the same series, and um, you know it's just good uh, for us to come together as a church sometimes and not always be doing our own thing. And so I'm extremely excited about the series and where we're going to go. It comes from... Basically, the church calendar, and I grew up in this church, and we really didn't follow the church calendar too much. Um, if you guys didn't know, you know, there's all kinds of different calendars out there, but the, you know, there's a business calendar and different things. But the church calendar follows very specific uh, things that go on throughout uh, the year, and you know, they kind of highlight the Advent season, which is Christmas, and there's a season of Pentecost, which they celebrate, and um, Easter, and, and this Lent series. There's another one called Epiphany. I'm not really even sure what that one's all about. I've never done it. Like I said, I grew up in church. We never really uh, participated too much in the church calendar. I mean, we celebrated Easter, but we never really um, participated in Lent that much. I mean, for me, Lent was when we got to go to the Catholic church on Fridays and eat some fish fry. And I was like, yeah, let's get some fish fry. And, you know, we always get chocolate bunnies and things like that. But that's all Lent ever meant to me. And uh, it's only been over the past couple of years I've really started to grasp the concept, and it's pretty neat to see that the historical church would would take um, time set aside and they'd say, you know, we want to look specifically every year at this area of our faith, and we want to focus focus in on it. And for those of you who don't know, Lent is the 40 days before Easter, okay? And that, is, and when I first heard of that, I'm, I did the math, and that doesn't make sense. That doesn't count Sundays. So it's the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. I'm not sure why they want to do that. They probably wanted to get this number 40 because it occurs in the Bible all, all the time. And so that's kind of where we're at. The, the historical church decided, hey, let's do this season of Lent and let's let's really focus in on some of our spiritual disciplines. It started last week technically, so we're a little late jumping into Lent. We are a week late as a youth group, but hopefully you guys are with us over at the church. And we started off Lent with what's called Ash Wednesday. If you guys were over there, uh, we participated in Ash Wednesday. You might have some questions. So when Ash Wednesday first started happening, I first saw it. Again, I was really confused. I, I didn't understand why people had ashes on their head. It was kind of weird and awkward. And, uh, I'm like, well, I don't do that. My church doesn't do that. And it was the first time I, I actually saw it. It was a couple years ago. And there was someone from our church. And, and I didn't even know that our church was doing it. So we started doing this thing called Ash Wednesday. And it really, uh, what it does is it represents our need for God. It's kind of 
um, we look to God in kind of our, our brokenness and our, our sinful nature, and we, we look to God to restore us. We ask God for forgiveness. And a lot of times it's not really good to continually dwell on our, our sinfulness. You know, we don't want to do that as, a, you know, we want to focus on how we're redeemed and forgiven. But every once in a while it is really important for us to go, oh man, we do really need God a whole lot. And Pastor Dave used this awesome analogy this past Wednesday uh, to kind of make it make sense. He said, you know, many of you probably have a junk drawer in your house. Do you guys have a junk drawer? And throughout the year, you know, you might might clean it out and it's all clean, but on it, you know, inevitably, throughout the the months that go by in a year, if you can clean it out, junk is going to find its way into that drawer. No matter how hard you try, it's just going to get filled up with stuff. You know, me and Julie, uh, you know, we have our house, and you know, I I, I said I'm not going to have any of those types of drawers, but I do. I do. You know, we get. Um, our wedding shower, some stuff got thrown in the junk drawer. We got the baby shower, some stuff got thrown in there. And there's you no know, tools and batteries and calculators and all these kinds of different things in there. And the point, you know, Dave was making is that's just like our spiritual life. We kind of clean ourselves up, but throughout the year we add all this stuff, all this stuff that begins to you know overflow, and we don't want anyone to see it. We don't want anyone to see our junk drawer. And over the course of a year, we get so filled up and we get cluttered with all these things. And it's, it's good for us to kind of have that spring cleaning, if you will, that time where we kind of really focus in on, on our spiritual disciplines and begin to clean ourselves up. And so that's what Ash Wednesday is all about. And uh, this whole Lent season looks forward to uh, Easter, ultimately this celebration. Uh, and that's just in a couple weeks. And I'm really excited. We are actually going to have, um, if you guys were around last year, we had Easter service over in Macomb Community College. But we're not going to do that this year. We are going to send some people to North. We're going to do things in our church. We'll probably be a little bit overflown. So, I don't know if overflow is a word. Overflowing, I guess. But we're actually going to have service down in the loft. Or not in the loft. Down in the gym on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, we'll have a video venue. Pastor will be on a video. We'll have live worship. I'm really excited about that. That's where we're all headed in Easter. But for this Lenten season. And, um, you know, the purpose of Lent is really to just wake us up. As I begin to do some, some devotions, I've been doing some readings, just kind of working my way through the season, and one of them talks about how Lent is just like a blast of cold water. If you ever jumped into like some freezing cold water, got in the shower, and you thought it was hot, it's freezing, and it just kind of shocks you. It just kind of wakes you up. And uh, that's really what Lent is all about. I, this thing came across my desk. I want to uh, read it to you. Did anyone give up anything for Lent? kind of said, I'm going to fast something. This is something that came across my desk. I think it's, as we start this Ashes of Fire series, I think it's kind of a good thing for us to, to look at or to ask. It's ten questions to ask yourself before starting Lent. So again, we're a little late. It's not like you didn't decide to start last Wednesday. It's not like you can't jump in now. It's not like a rule that says you have to go 40 days. Here's some questions I think are pretty interesting. So when I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, or Easter at the end of Lent, how will I be different? Think about that question. Ask yourself that question. How will I be different in 40 days? Are you doing it just to do it? Can we do it every year? Because so-and-so is doing it? Or is there really a motive behind what you're doing? Number two, is there a habit or sin in my life that repeatedly gets in the way of loving God with my whole heart or loving my neighbor as myself? How do I address that habit over the next 40 days? 
And again, that's really at the heart of Lent and what we're doing in the seasons. What has what have I accumulated in my life that's really not that important that I, I need to get rid of? Three, is there anyone in my life whom I need to ask for forgiveness or pursue reconciliation? Four, what practical steps can I take to carve out time for daily contemplation? Meaning, okay, you know, maybe I've been pretty lax with daily prayer or daily scripture reading, but what am I going to do to change that during Lent? Five, what spiritual discipline do I need to improve upon or want to try? So maybe, maybe you've never fasted before, or maybe that's something you want to try. Six, what are some things in my life that I tell myself I need, but I don't? Can I give one or two of them up for 40 days? A lot of people are giving up things like Facebook, we think we need it, but we don't. Or Starbucks, we think we need it, but we don't. Why am I giving this particular thing up? How does giving it up draw me closer to God and prepare me for Easter? Right? Why am I going to tell myself, or what am I going to tell myself when something I have is hard? Number nine, what is it necessary or helpful, or is it necessary or helpful for me to share the nature of my fast with others, or should I keep it private? You don't want to go to people and say, hey, look what I'm doing. I'm fasting this. Aren't I so awesome? That's really not the point of fasting. So some things will be beneficial to tell someone. Number 10, what do ashes mean to me this year? What does baptism mean to me this year? And I thought that was cool to read. It came across my desk and really began me to think about, I'm not just going to go and jump in the light and say I'm going to give up Facebook because that's what I did last year. I'm not going to just go and, and do this because I did it last year, but I really want to contemplate be in prayer, ask these questions about what God wants me to learn or what God's, how I want to be different by the time Lent is, is done. And so we're going to get into the lesson uh, this evening. I know I haven't even started. I've talked for about 10 minutes ago. Like, seriously. We're going to get into this morning. We're going to, we're going to get a journey with Jesus over these next six weeks. Uh, and we'll have different people speaking to you. And like I said, we're going to be following the church. Um, I'm expecting Julie's like a ticking time bomb, and so uh, we're, we're, I'm expecting the baby any time now, and so got a couple different people lined up to speak just so, that, so I'm ready. But we're going to start off uh, this week talking about the very start of Jesus' ministry, and throughout the next couple weeks we're going to journey along and look at Jesus' ministry up until the point of Easter. That's kind of our end goal. And so as we start, if you guys have your Bibles, I need you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, New Testament. Just go to Mark 1. Don't need a particular verse at the moment. We start off at the very beginning, and Jesus really starts off with kind of Jesus' forerunner, who is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the guy who's going to go before Jesus. He's, he's basically the person who's supposed to kind of prepare the way. And you read about John the Baptist, he's a pretty cool dude. He's, he, Bible talks about how he lives in the wilderness. He, he's a real hairy dude. Wears camels, uh, hair clothes, eats wild you know, locusts, and different things like that. He's kind of like a cross between Bear Grylls and Billy Graham. Uh, he's a pretty cool guy. I, I mean, if, if I could pick a couple people besides Jesus to hang out with, John the Baptist probably would be one of them. He probably would be like my hiking buddies. He seems like a pretty cool guy. But his job is to set up Jesus' ministry. And I can't imagine having that job. I mean, it's really humbling for me even to be a youth pastor in the city of Ward. For God to say, Matt, I've called you to be a youth pastor. To me, that's humbling. That's like, I can't believe you're, you're, you're calling me to be responsible for students and for adults and to lead this ministry. That's a big deal. I can't imagine 
being the guy who's responsible to set up Jesus' ministry. I mean, no pressure. If you screw up, you know, no, no big deal. Jesus just won't be ready to preach. And that, that's a lot of pressure. And so John the Baptist is, is preaching, and he's, he's, he's got this following, and people are getting ready. And uh, verse uh, 1 in uh, Mark says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, this is John the Baptist, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, that sounds good. It says, prepare the way for the Lord. And for us, you know, make straight paths, let's talk about like a road. Well, for us to make straight paths or to prepare the way, it would just be like, well, get out of the way. If someone wants to drive down the road, you just, you don't go in the road. That's what you do. You just get out of the way. You don't do really do anything. But back then, this really had some meaning when, when a king would travel and he would go somewhere. It's kind of nice to be privileged. They would literally have people go and prepare the way. They would be active. They would send out people. And I don't know what they drove, probably a chariot or something. I guess in my head I was thinking a covered wagon, but that's probably not the same time. But it's similar. I mean, there's animals pulling things with wheels. But... If you've ever played Oregon Trail and you had to fix your axle or, or break something, that's what would happen back in the olden days. And so they would literally send people out in front of them to prepare the road. It was an active thing that they did. They would go out and they would move boulders out of the way. They would fix potholes. They would cut down trees so that the king would have straight travel. That's what it literally meant to prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist isn't something saying, okay, just get ready and move out of the way for Jesus, but... Get people ready. And what he was doing, he was out, he was actively preaching, he was telling people to repent of their sins, to be forgiven. And he was baptizing people. And he was telling people, you know, right now, you know, I'm baptizing you with water, but soon there's going to be someone else. He's going to baptize you with something way cooler than water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be, make a huge difference in your lives. And this is where we pick up Jesus' ministry. As we begin this Lent season, this is where Mark starts starts off and kind of introduces Jesus. Jesus goes to this guy, John, and he says he wants to be baptized. He goes to John and says, I want to be baptized. And John's like, whoa, seriously, you're, you're the Son of God. You are Jesus. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. I mean, I don't... I, I, it's going to be kind of awkward. I don't even know how John would do that. Like, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, of you, and of the Spirit. I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't really make sense. It's really just being funny. John's baptism was a lot different. I'm sure the, the liturgy and the words he said wasn't that same thing. But it, it would have been different. He tried to convince Jesus, like, no, you don't need to be baptized. You're the Son of God. You're the person we're baptizing people into. And Jesus was completely sinless, and so if John's baptism represented repentance of sins, why did he really need to do this? And we look at this passage, and I asked him, I had to study it. Like, I don't know, why did, why did Jesus have to be baptized? It doesn't make much sense. And there's a couple of reasons. The first thing is that, as you look, and scholars believe that this was really marking Jesus' entrance into ministry. This was the moment where he said, okay, I'm ready, and I'm going to begin preaching the good news of, of, of who I am and what I'm going to do for people. And it's kind of like a, this initiation, okay, I'm ready. And so that's, that's the first thing. 
The second thing is that he's supporting John's ministry. You got, if you can imagine, you have this John the Baptist, this guy who's preaching everything, and all of a sudden Jesus comes out on the scene. People would get really confused. Like, am I supposed to follow John the Baptist or am I supposed to follow Jesus? I don't really get it. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. John's my old boy. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with what he's doing, and he's going to turn all over his disciples to me now, and I'm going to lead them. Third thing he does is he kind of sets an example for us to follow. It's pretty apparent to me that if Jesus didn't even need to be really forgiven of his sins but was baptized, he was saying that it's probably a good idea for all believers, for all of us to be baptized. The fourth thing that he was doing is that you had to imagine that the religious people of that day were probably looking at John the Baptist and weren't real happy with this guy. You know, asking people to repent of their sins and preaching this baptism. And what Jesus was doing, when he was going to be baptized, he was saying, you know what? All you religious people, I am identifying myself with these people, these sinners, not you. Not you holy people who think you're better than everybody else, but I'm going to identify myself with John and his followers and these disciples. And so we begin Jesus' ministry and his baptism looks like this. Many of you have probably uh, read this scripture. But it's in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to follow along with me. It says this. At the time Jesus came to Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. At, 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 that time, at that time, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now I don't know how to preach this verse to you or help you understand the magnitude of what just happened. I mean, even, even Mark probably really struggled to write these verses. Because how do you explain the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on the sun like a dove, and then with a loud, thunderous voice saying, You are my Son, whom I love, and whom I am well pleased. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, John had probably baptized a lot of people, and nothing like this had ever happened before. I mean, he probably had stories and went home and, and said, You know, I, I baptized this person, and he, he wouldn't come up, or he was, you know, he plugged his nose, or he was choking. They probably had some funny stories, and I watched some funny baptisms the other day with with this girl that kept repeatedly jumping and holding her nose and trying to baptize herself, and the, the pastor like was like not sure what to do because this girl didn't know what was going on. It was really funny. But I'm sure Don never had a story like, you know, hey, well, today I baptized this guy and heavens tore open. I mean, that's a pretty good day. It's a pretty good day when heaven is torn open and Jesus said, or God says to his son, You are my son whom I love, with you who I am well pleased. And that's pretty important to where we're going today. You see, Jesus, our God, gives Jesus this identity. He, he affirms him. He says, you are my son. I love you. That is who you are. Any of these religious people can say things against you. People can spit in your face. They can do whatever they want. But you are my son. As we move on to the rest of the, the scripture, it gets really interesting here. 
Because you would think at this point, if Jesus has just been kind of initiated, he's been given the stamp of approval, then you would think what happens next is that he goes off and starts his ministry, and he goes for it. I mean, you would think God, instead of saying, I love you, you're my son, he would be like, go preach this, go cast out some demons, go do some miracles, go preach about repentance, do all these different things. And in my head, I think of this like, like a high school basketball player who's a stud, like LeBron James. Like, you don't go to college. You just go to the NBA and you dominate. That's what, that's what you do. Go to the NBA, make your money, start. I mean, you're good enough. You can do that. And so as I'm reading this, that's kind of example. Like, that's what I would do if I was Jesus. But yet you go into the next verse and we see that that's not really what happens. The very next verse <coughs> After you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, it says this in Mark. It says that once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attending him. Not really the typical start you would think from the guy who just had this amazing baptism experience where the heavens were torn open. I, I just That's not the way I would do it. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And it's not that, you read it, it doesn't say the devil tempted him and brought him out into the desert. It said he was sent out. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, it says he was led out, which is a little bit less forceful. But Mark uses this word sent in the Greek. It's ex balo, and I don't know if I said that right, but that's how it's spelled, and there's three syllables, so that's what we're going to go with. But it's really forceful. It's like casting. It's forcing someone. It's like pushing them. That's really what this means. And what we learn from this is that God wanted this to happen. I mean, God and the Spirit pushed him, directed him. That was part of God's plan, was for Jesus to go out into the desert and to face this temptation. And that's God's plan. It's one thing we learn, and it's kind of interesting to look at that. Because a lot of times when we're in the desert, where we're in those kinds of places, we begin to freak out. We begin to wonder, I'm in this place where things aren't going really good for me right now, and, and, and things aren't the way I want them, and maybe God has just abandoned me. Maybe this isn't, I'm not in God's will, and I'm not in God's plan, and that's what we do. And I think some of that comes from a lot of people who will preach this message that God wants your life to be completely like a bed of roses, and wants it to be nice, and wants it to be smooth, and He doesn't ever want to challenge you. But really, that doesn't make sense. That's, like, that's really an oxymoron. If God wants us to, to live our lives up here, if we're ever going to do that, it's never going to be achieved by just going through life real easy. The only we're gonna, way we're ever going to reach this level of spiritual maturity is to go through times of the wilderness, in the desert, through temptation, so that we can grow. And we emerge from those situations, and we're better, better for it. And we need to understand that not only is this normal, but we need to expect it. Because when we don't expect it, we get into these, these times in our lives we, where we get into the wilderness, and all of a sudden we, begin, we, we, could, we, we question God, we get confused, but instead we should expect it. We should be able to label it and say, okay, I'm in one of these seasons of life where everything isn't going just as I want. It's maybe a wilderness situation, but what is God trying to teach me in this moment? Where is God leading me in the end and what does that look like? 
And this really isn't the only time that we see this type of thinking in the Bible. It's not like this one time Jesus leads people, God leads Jesus into the wilderness. It happens all the time. There's a, you go back to the Old Testament and the Exodus. The people of Israel, they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And they spent 40 years in the desert wandering around in the wilderness before they made it into the promised land. And that story directly parallels this story in the New Testament where Jesus spends 40 days. And both people, both Jesus and the Israelites, had to kind of solidify their identity. They had to kind of learn who they were in this wilderness experience. Both times, God showed them amazing love. He didn't just send them out there and said, good luck. Remember, Jesus tore up the heavens and said, you are my son, I love you, I'm all pleased. Now go to the wilderness. The Israelites, he didn't just send them out into the wilderness, but he gave them the kind of this weird, twisted love gift where he destroyed their enemies. And you look at that and you're like, well, that's kind of rough. But think about it. You want to show someone you love them, you take care of them. And the Israelites were in a situation where they had the Egyptians coming after them, wanting to destroy them, and God destroyed them. And you think, well, that's kind of rough with God. But it's really not. I mean, he gave them ten... Ten signs that say, hey, leave my people alone. If you don't, it's going to be trouble. And they didn't let him go, and they chased after him. And if you guys know the story, they were caught up in the Red Sea, and they, they drowned. But before Israel went into the wilderness, they had that, that sense of God's love, of God's protection, of him saying, I'm going to take care of you before I send you into the wilderness. So we see this kind of thinking all the time. And so it really wasn't so much about the temptation and the uh, trying to win out, you know, living for God instead of the devil, but it was really showing God our readiness. It was really kind of this proving ground. It was really kind of developing our character, not, not so much our morals, if we're going to lie or if Jesus is going to, you know, cheat or steal or do anything like that, but what is he going to decide to do? Who is he? What is his identity? And that's where we're going to kind of close out Tonight we're going to look at the three temptations of Jesus in the desert. So if you guys have your Bibles, we've got to jump over to Matthew now because Mark is pretty short. doesn't have a lot of details. Mark's pretty neat when you read his gospel. It's very chronological, which is good, but there's not a whole lot of details. So if you want to follow along in the temptations, I need you guys to go to Matthew chapter 4. Go to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to take a look at this. First temptation, have you ever heard this story uh, before. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the desert. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could do a 40-day fast. I'd be pretty skinny. It'd be pretty rough. I lost like 10 pounds when I went backpacking for a week, and I ate the whole time. That's all I did was eat, and I still lost about 10 pounds, because you can't eat like you normally do when you have a stove, and you have all these, you know, fast food and all these things. So I, I can imagine, I, I know how starving I was, after a week of eating all the time? Does that make sense? So you can imagine how hungry Jesus is after not eating a whole lot after 40 days. Okay? So let, let's get in. Matthew chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Now right off the bat, I think devil made a critical mistake there. He should have went with something way cooler than bread. He should have went with like, tell it to become chido. Or tell it to become, you know, Jewish materials, 
uh, spadini. Something a little bit better than bread. I mean, you can, if you're going to change from rocks to something, you can probably change to whatever you want. So tactical error on the double double part. Tactical error. My observations, doesn't say that in scripture. My observations. But right off the bat, the devil does something, he does something pretty sneaky, pretty clever. He, he begins to ask you to doubt who he is. He doesn't say, hey, if you're hungry, turn the stones to bread. He says, if you are really the Son of God. Really? I mean, if you are, you could do this. If you're really the Son of God, and this isn't really a new tactic that the devil uses. He does this all the time. He begins to have us doubt who we are. He did this to Adam and Eve in the garden. Very first person he deceived, what did he do? He began to have them doubt. He was like, I don't know, that fruit looks pretty good, but God told me not to do it. The devil was like, you can eat that? God, did he really say you would die? Would you really, you think you're really going to die by eating fruit? That doesn't even make sense. God doesn't, he doesn't love you. He doesn't want the best for you. You Go ahead, eat it. See, I mean, you'll be fine. And you know the story from there. Now we got to wear clothes and all that good stuff. But that's what the devil's doing. He's, he's having us doubt who we are. Remember, he just Jesus got, just got done telling him, tearing up the heavens, saying, you are my son, whom I love, whom I well please. But right off the bat, the devil's trying to get him to doubt who he is. Am I really the son of God? Because if you did, you could do it. You could do it, and you take it a step further. It really wasn't about sin. I mean, it wasn't sin to eat the food. There was nothing wrong with eating food. It's okay to eat food. It's not wrong to eat. It would probably have been very healthy for Jesus to eat. It would have been fine. It wasn't like a sin issue, but it was a dependency issue. The devil was talking to Jesus, and he was saying, Look, why don't, you, know, you might die if you don't eat this. Does, Jesus, does God really love you? Is he really going to keep his promise and take care of you? He led you out here. You, you might need to take over from here. You might need to say, God, uh, step aside. I'm going to make my own food. And I'm going to begin to uh, take care of myself and make my own food rather than depending on God. That's what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do. Not necessarily sin, but begin to doubt who God was, to doubt God's promise, to doubt God's love and taking care of him. What's Jesus said? Jesus answered with Scripture. I love that. He always answers with Scripture. That's just one of those things we need to do. When we need to respond to temptation, we need to know God's Word. And that's what Jesus does. He says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Slap in the face. Booyah. Point Jesus. Devil's here. I got you. This has happened before. The people in Israel... They begin to doubt. They begin to be in that wilderness and begin to want to take care of themselves. Personally, if I was the devil, I would have went with the reverse psychology method. I would have been like, Jesus, keep praying and fasting. And if you do, then you're listening to what I say. And then that way he might have had a shot. Again, tactical error on the devil's part. And again, that was just a funny thought that came to my mind as I was studying for this. Wouldn't have actually won that argument, but I thought it was funny. Another thing that I thought was funny is, and if you've ever read the scripture, it, 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 when you read scripture, you try to, you guys have a, like a, a vision of what, uh, you know, of what things look like back then. It's kind of, you know, you have the different Bible stories, and maybe you've, 
you've kind of developed what it looks like, maybe partly from Sunday school felt boards, or you know, maybe veggie tails or something like that. But you kind of you have an idea of what this looks like. And unfortunately for me, for this whole verse, uh, our section of scripture, all I can think of is uh, the Christmas Carol, where the ghosts are taking uh, the Scrooge around. And they're taking him to all these different things. So as we get into the next temptation, all of a sudden we are in the wilderness. And now it says in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, about 450 feet high. So again, if you can picture Christmas Carol with me, this, this, is, this, is, what I, this is how I picture it. And I don't know, I mean, obviously I don't think they'd walk there. That would have been kind of an awkward walk with the devil and Jesus. By the time they got there, I mean, it would have just been weird. So that's, that's how I picture it. Again, not scriptural, just my opinion. That's the way I look at this passage, and, and you can take that for what it's worth. But you get to the next temptation, and it reads like this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And I pray that every time I get into a plague. My God, if this thing goes down, if you could send your angels concerning me, that I might not strike my foot against a stone, or the seat in front of me, or the fireball of a plane that's going to come, or a tower, or a mountain, or the water. If you could do that, that'd be great. Then I'm good. I pray that every time. But Satan, at this point, says, all right, you want to talk scripture? I got I guess scripture for you. Because they start playing some textual tennis. That's when you say one scripture, and then Jesus is going to respond with another one. And so the devil serves, serves up Psalm 91. He says, look, I already questioned God's love for you, but now I want to question his faithfulness. Is he really going to come through for you? Is he really going to do... What he says, is he really going to protect you? Why don't you test him? Are you really, if you're really the Son of God, prove it to me. Prove that you're the Son of God, because I don't believe you. I don't really believe you are, you said you are, so prove it. If you ever play tennis God, or Jesus, he's going to win. Jesus serves back from Psalm 91, he goes through Deuteronomy 6, 16. He says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Point Jesus. Two. Slap in the face. But really, it's a little bit more serious than that. I mean, we can look at these scriptures and we can take a look at them. Of course, Jesus is, you know, we, we know the end story. We know Easter, and so we know Jesus didn't succumb. We know he was perfect. So, reading these stories, it's like no big deal. Like, of course, Jesus didn't succumb to temptation. He was perfect. We know that. So, it's really hard to read these, these verses and get a whole lot out of it. But we do this all the time. We go in our own wilderness, whatever that is, whatever situation we're in. And even though we know we're God's children, even though we've seen God's faithfulness time and time again, we begin to like we begin to doubt sometimes. God, what are you here? What is uh, what is going on? Are you? Are you? Are, I don't. I don't. Can't feel you anymore. I'm kind of doubting you. And Jesus got to be like, really. Do you not remember the time I, I, I you know, we, 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 we sing these songs, just, you know, uh, praise the one who, who paid my debt, and raised me up from the, from the, the dead, and I might have screwed up the words, but basically that's the gist of it. We begin to, we begin to forget that. We begin to forget what Jesus did. And the same thing happened to Israelites in the wilderness. 
They had just had a God that said, I'm going to take care of you so much that that when people who I also love come after you, because they're coming after you and you're my chosen people, I'm going to destroy them. Duh, God is there. These same Israelites who experienced that, they're in the desert and they start to get thirsty. They start to complain. They're like, and they literally, they literally say, is God here? They're like, Moses, where did God go? We don't know if he's here anymore. We would rather be slaves back in Egypt where we at least had some food and water and that was a whole lot better. And we do that in our own lives. We begin, God, where are you? We begin to doubt Jesus' faithfulness. And again, Jesus responds. Deuteronomy 6, 16, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, if you're a new believer and you don't know God, absolutely put God to the test. Ask Him, say, God, reveal yourself to me because I don't know you. He will surely do it. However, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for years on end and you've seen Him save you from a sin and you've seen Him work in powerful ways, Jesus really doesn't look like it when you start to doubt Him. He doesn't, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like it, the Israelites, when He had just got done saving them from. Uh, Pharaoh and the Egypt, and then all of a sudden they're like, God, are you here? A little lack of appreciation. He, he's not too fond of that. And we shouldn't do that in our own lives. We have to remember who we are. That's why Jesus didn't say, oh, you know what? I, I will test God. I will really see if God loves me. I will really see if he's faithful. I'm going to throw myself off this building, even though it would probably be really cool and really fun. He doesn't. Why would I need to prove to you who God is to me? God just opened up the heavens and I remember. I know who I am. I know my identity so I don't have to deal with this kind of temptation. Israel failed and we fail sometimes because we forget who we are. But Jesus didn't. Jesus remembered who he was. I want to touch on this third temptation starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world and the splendor. So again, Christmas, Carol, they go up to a mountain. Okay. Showed him all the kingdoms in a vision. I'm assuming you couldn't see from there unless you had like a supervision or something. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The devil said, I'll give you everything if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, we read this and we're like, Well, duh. Of course, of course the, why would Jesus worship the devil? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. And the first couple times I read that, I'm like, Well, what are we supposed to learn from that? Because you read that and I know the end story. And, I, and as I begin to study this, it began to make a whole lot more sense to me. See, see, Satan has already attacked God's love. He's already attacked God's faithfulness. But now he, he begins to, to attack Jesus' hope in God. Because, see, this makes a lot more sense. You know, I think, well, devil, you're stupid. Of course that's not going to work. And I'm not saying that Jesus considered this. But I think we don't even know why he would consider this. But you begin to, to look at it. 
And the devil's saying, you know what? Why would you go through all this suffering for these people? Back in Israel, in the wilderness, they didn't love God. You did all that stuff for, for, for um, those people, and they built a golden calf. They began to worship idols not long after you did all these miraculous things and told them who they were. Why would they worship you? Why would you put yourself through all this trouble? You want to be lifted up? You want to be glorified? Do it the easy way. See, what the devil was saying is, you want to be lifted up. You want all these kingdoms. Take it now. Don't wait. Do it without suffering. What he was saying was, hey, I got a way out for you, Jesus, that doesn't involve going to the cross. I got a way out for you with, you know, doubt who you are. Doubt that God will raise you from the dead. Doubt that. You really have hope that if you die and are crucified, you're going to be risen from the dead? That's really what's going on here. The devil is offering him this risk-free kind of way out answer to facing the cross and facing God's plans for his life. And again, we do that in our wildernesses so often. We begin to say, well, this is really tough. If we want to accomplish God's mission for our life, it's going to involve some sacrifice. It's going to involve trusting God in ways that are really tough. It's going to involve putting our hope in God, and that's hard to do when we can't see the end result. And I've never read that scripture up until this afternoon when I was studying for this message like that. Because again, you look at the, like, the devil didn't have a chance. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that he really did. But in the context of how we look at it, that makes a whole lot more sense to me. Is that in the wilderness, for us, it's really easy to say, all right, well, I'm going to do what's familiar. I'm going to do what, what's painless, what doesn't cost me anything, and I'm going to go with that route. Instead of putting our hope in God. And tonight, I want to close in just a few minutes. I don't know what your wilderness is. I don't know if you're going through just maybe a dry time with God and, and you just have a hard time hearing his voice. I don't know if you have a, a bad family situation. I don't know if you have a financial crisis. I don't know if you have problems with you know, bullies at school or whatever it is. But I want you to remember that God brings us to the desert so that we can emerge tested and ready to go. Now, I'm not saying God's going to put you in the desert over and over and over and over again find yourself in that kind of situation, chances are you're not learning from what he wants to teach you and that there's a problem. But I am saying that there are times in our lives where we will be put in wilderness, where we be put in questions of uncertainty because we are to be tested, we're to be stretched. And the thing that's going to carry you through that wilderness is your identity in God, in Jesus Christ. I'm about to have a baby pretty soon. Or Julius, we are. And uh, I kind of want to close with this example. You know, th this baby, you know, we just, uh, it's getting real real. and begin to spend more time with my wife praying for this baby. But there's going to come a time where this uh, child is going to grow up and it's going to become older and it's going to come time for it to make its own decisions. I'm not going to be, be there. I'm not going to go out and spy on it when it goes out with its friends. Maybe I will. Who knows? 
And I know that child's going to face the same temptations I face. And if I go to that child and I say, here's a list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Probably end up failing. Child's probably going to be able to rationalize. Well, anyway, you know, it's okay if I do this. Or, you know, it's okay to do that. Probably end up failing. But if before that baby goes out, and before that you know, child then goes out and starts to make a decision, I tell it, I look it right in the eyes, and I say, son, daughter, we don't know, remember who you are. In that moment when it's faced, I haven't given it a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. I've given it my heart. Remember who you are. Well, see, when we remember who we are, remember our identity in Christ, that God, we begin to remember that God does love us Incredibly, that we are as children. Remember that God's faithful. Remember that, hey, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I, I know that he's been there in the past and he'll be there in the future. I know that I can put my hope in Jesus Christ. I know that because of who I am. And that's really what this season, Ashes of Fire, is all about. Being to remember who we are. Getting back to that first love. Getting back to these spiritual disciplines. And I want to close just uh, with a word of prayer. And you guys will be dismissed. I want you guys to begin to journey with me, though. I want you guys to begin to journey with the church. There's devotionals every week. If you go on the website, you can kind of latch on to and begin to read and, and participate together and reading the same scriptures and asking yourselves the same kind of questions. And I don't want this to be an individual thing. I want us to come together as a church to lift each other up as a youth group to begin to make this journey uh, not just as individuals. But I want to get to Easter as a group and begin to celebrate Begin to reignite a passion and a fire within you guys. And it starts with remembering who we are. Will you guys pray with me? God, we are so thankful that we serve a God who can relate to us. God, you say in Hebrews 4, 15, we don't serve a high priest that can't relate. But we serve a high priest who sympathizes with us, who is tempted in every way. God, you are human just like us. You faced decisions that were tough. And we know that you were able to overcome those decisions. You were able to, to flee from temptation. We know that you were able to overcome. Not because you just made up your mind and listened to do some dose, but because you remembered who you were. Because God opened up the heavens, looked down on you, and said, You are my son, whom I well please, and who I love. God, would you say the same thing to us? We are your children. You've given us the right to be children of God, and you love us. God, I pray over the next 40 days, that you continually remind us who we are. God, in the times we walk in the wilderness, in the times we walk and we wonder where you are, what you're, where... Where are you, God? What is going on? Why are things going the right way or the way we want? God, 
God, we remember that we are to expect this time. We are to expect these challenges. That you have a plan for us. You are, you are there with us, helping us to emerge from that wilderness stronger. With a stronger faith, more hope, more faith. God, be with this youth ministry as we travel through this series. God, change our hearts. Bring us back to you. Empty out our closets. The things we've accumulated over the past year. God, things were, uh, that we've just let creep into our life that take our focus off of you. God, we are your children. But you are our dad. You are our father. You are our heavenly father, God. And we worship and we praise you tonight. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.